0: hey what's up everybody this is drew and welcome to the codeco podcast in this podcast we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk now here's the show
1: thanks welcome back to the codeco podcast welcome to episode 11 for season one this episode was recorded on sunday the 2nd of april 2023 for release on thursday the 13th of april 2023 This episode is sponsored by Split.io. I am your co-host, Susanna Skyar Gupta, along with our fearless host, Drew Freeman.
0: Thanks, Suze. In this episode, we'll dive deep into the timely topic of AI, including what experienced and newer mobile devs need to know, need to watch out for, and lastly, what everyone might want to try out. With us today is Marin Bachevich, who is a medical image processing researcher, and that's a mouthful. He's also an iOS developer on the side, as well as part of our iOS contributor team here at Codeco.
2: Marin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me.
0: It is wonderful having you here because um, AI has suddenly become raining down on us left and right. Um, uh, It is... uh, I I, I am hoping that the the days of Skynet have not come so soon.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, definitely these last few uh weeks have been very hectic in the ai world uh i suppose it's kind of like what e- epidemiologists felt uh when covid hit and they sort of became the center of the attention but uh i as far as i know skynet is is still very far away uh
0: Oh, that's good to hear. So Martin, tell us a little bit about yourself what you do and uh, a little bit more about medical imaging processing research.
2: I came here on the show as a sort of uh, AI expert even though I don't really do the the language large language model aspect, although the techniques are very similar. So I started off as a as an iOS developer. Uh, back maybe five to seven years ago, and then uh, eventually I sort of had this passion always for machine learning and deep learning, and so I decided, uh, basically one day, to stop the iOS work that I was doing and uh, start getting a PhD in in AI. And the topic oh, wow. of yeah. <laughs> so
1: you really you just at some point you just fell into the rabbit hole, and you're like, okay, I'm going all in.
2: Well, it was kind of, um, it was a a gradual sort of uh, slope uh, towards it, but yeah, an opportunity came up and I decided to take it. So uh, what I do, basically what we do at my lab is we try to figure out models to help uh, medical doctors or or radiologists or different sort of uh, medical professionals. Uh, see and understand images better so for instance if if someone is getting a, a stent uh, maybe the doctor will do an x-ray angiogram which is basically just a, a, a an image of uh, different vessels around the heart. And then what we can do is we can take that image's input and then do uh, basically deep learning algorithms to find certain aspects of the image to perform measurements to suggest where the stent will be placed and then do predictions, like maybe what the outcome of the patients will be depending on where the stent is placed, etc.
0: That is fascinating. And
1: you're writing the algorithms. What part, what's your part? So that is actually a
2: question that I get very often, uh, which is like when you're doing deep learning, people often wonder, so, so what exactly are you doing? Because isn't the machine supposed to learn? Um, so uh, basically what you're doing when you're training or building machine learning models is you define an architecture, you define what the data will look like, what sort of pre-processing you will do to the data, and you basically define a sort of generic uh code or function uh mathematically speaking you define a function with certain types which works a certain way and has certain parameters and then the deep learning model will itself learn what those parameters are so those specific numbers that go in your function but the function itself is what you write as the programmer
1: and is there still any ios in there at all or ios is a different part of your life uh, so right now it's a different part of
2: my life, but uh, the the, so the skills that I got, uh, especially in software engineering and stuff, uh, have been very useful because uh, I have noticed that people who are in academia or especially in data science do not often have experience working in like front end development work. So it's been very very useful to know all of those code practices and everything like that. And then hopefully eventually uh, there is a lot of. Up and coming emerging technologies, which use either the iPhone or uh, macOS or something like that, uh, to process or to capture and process medical images. So hopefully, one day I will get to merge the two uh, skills. Uh,
0: so what was it about uh, AI that that first wet your whistle? What 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 was the uh, the germ that that bloomed to, to really drag you over that way?
2: So uh, my. my sort of primary motivation was um trying to work on something uh, which will have some sort of impact on the world now um that sounds sort of grand i uh, will have to uh, i have to caution people that my impact on the world is very very tiny because everything in science is incredibly uh both specialized and incremental, but still, uh, it feels nice to be working on something which is sort of cutting edge, not yet uh, explored and also has potentially some real world impact down the line. Uh, previously I worked at some agencies and it, it gets sort of tiring to, to work on the same apps over and over again. So it's fun to sort of switch gears and, and do something, which is a little more, uh, I don't know Uh, it's harder it's more challenging maybe in some aspects uh but it's sort of more rewarding
1: and is the work that you're doing do you see it being used in hospitals like do you interact with the doctors who are using this uh
2: sometimes uh sometimes our work is is theoretical but uh sometimes we do work with doctors although uh we don't work directly uh, for clinical use cases what we do usually is we participate in clinical studies so maybe doctors are interested to see how some algorithm will perform and so we will develop their that algorithm then they can do a study and see uh, the outcomes but uh, for clinical uses, it's really hard to get something like that approved and go through all the bureaucracy. And anyways, that's sort of more for the uh, for large companies like Philips or Siemens or people who make CT machines, not for uh, little. Uh, scientists like
0: us. <laughs> <laughs> so, we we often talk about deep learning. Can you give us a a little bit more of a of a forty thousand foot view of what you mean when you say deep learning?
2: Okay, yeah. So, um, deep learning is uh, it, it, it's now have. It's become a very all-encompassing term. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts right now, uh, but in its sort of most basic form, um, deep learning allows you to uh, figure out some sort of a relationship inside some data. So for instance, let's say you are running a basketball team and you have a bunch of players that you want to, uh, you have a bunch of players to pick from and you know all of their uh, information, like their height, you know how many points they get per game, etc. and you want to build your team. And so uh, what you have is a bunch of previous teams and their results. And uh, for each player you have some sort of uh, measurements. So those measurements are your inputs and then the uh, outcome or the thing that you want to predict is how well the team has done in the season. And so you, you add a bunch of data points into a deep learning model, and then the deep learning model sort of adjusts its own parameters to fit that data. So for instance, uh, if you give it five players and you know those five players did well, then the model should tell you that those five players do well and uh, vice versa. And then what you're hoping is that for any future five players, Uh, that the model has never seen before, it will give you a correct output. So it's sort of trying to interpolate from historic data what will happen in the Uh, future.
0: So it almost seems like from an American football point of view, when you're talking about the draft and you're looking at all these potential new players, you can effectively have a model off of your current team and see who is the best uh, players in the draft to select from.
2: Yeah, so let's say you have, uh, I don't know, you, you, you have a million players who have previously been in the drafts. No human can reasonably understand all of the relationships between all of those parameters and all of those people and how they did. But maybe uh, if you train a deep learning model, which is big enough, it can learn these very complex relationships, like maybe someone who who has this height and this weight and also does well at these specific areas will fit perfectly inside your team and boost your performance.
1: Yeah, I'm curious now to what extent these tools are being used right now in sport and finance you can see all sorts of applications for this so if somebody's listening and they're thinking huh maybe i want to be like marin um maybe i should study deep learning so what kind of person like what kind of skills do you need to bring to this field to be successful so i i would say um
2: it's sort of similar as it is with programming um it's sort of hard to say i want to be a programmer it's much easier to to succeed if you say i want to build i don't know an ios app that does this or or i want to build a website that does that so sort of knowing the knowledge of some specific domain i think is the the primary skill that you need to have because just learning deep learning for the sake of of doing deep learning it's not gonna get you very far and then in terms of the actual deep learning part uh well deep learning is very diverse and you can u- use it at any level so you can go very low down and build basically compilers for deep learning models or you can go very very high level and just use chat gpt and and uh, use that to achieve your task so in terms of skills uh basically you can find your place uh with almost any background that you have as long as you know the basics of programming.
0: See, I'm stuck on the whole sports thing because I remember (laughs) uh, there's been stories upon stories upon movies concerning things like finding the perfect horse racing algorithm or finding the perfect poker algorithm. And and I wonder whether or not we're on the verge of ruining these sports because we have people who can... I, I don't know if there are just too many variables to to even uh, confront the computer with.
2: Yeah. So one thing with sports is that by its nature is competitive. So uh, you would expect that if one team gets a competitive advantage, then by the next season all teams will do the same thing. So it should remain competitive, but it's definitely. There's sort of this effect where the the sort of variance is reduced. There's there maybe there will be less these dramatic key moments of of complete you know leaving somebody in the dust. Uh, but still you know exceptional humans arise all the time, and sometimes you get a person who is so exceptional that they just. Move the whole sport forward, and there's nothing AI or any machine learning model can do about that.
1: And with, okay, and with teams, like even, you know, just in the setup that you've put forward as a really interesting example of, you know, creating the perfect teams based on looking back over a million players and all their attributes. But then how the team works together, like, you know, you can't, we don't know yet how to quantify that. Yeah. And so, you know, the yeah. people and the interpersonal part can cause magic to occur, which I guess is heartening that there's still room for magic to occur.
2: Uh, yeah. And it's one thing to predict the, the sort of perfect player to put in your team, but it's a whole another thing to, to train that player and to... to get them uh into the team and working well with others and you know ai can just sort of give you suggestions but it's still up to humans to implement that stuff
1: good yeah let's let's keep having heartening (laughs) moments where we say these things can be still for us as humans yeah
0: yeah i I, i'm appreciating the the human spirit will win out that that that's comforting from somebody who has read far too much science fiction and dystopian societies run by computers. Um so we mentioned ChatGPT. Let let's try to to separate out what is ChatGPT in the realm of what's going on right now and even what does ChatGPT stand for? Well, I mean, let let's just talk about that specific tool as, as it seems to have led the uh the parade of a lot of similar tools.
2: So, um ChatGPT is part of a, a whole class of models which has uh, sort of exploded in the last couple of years called LLMs, or Large Language Models. Uh, and I think it's it's very important to understand how ChatGPT is actually trained to, to realize what its uh, limitations are and what its advantages are. So these models are basically trained to predict... Uh, I'm going to simplify this a bit, but basically they predict what the next word word will be in a sentence. So let's say uh, I say a sentence like, I need to go home to feed my blank. And then the model needs to predict what the blank word is. And so maybe there's a, I don't know, a 60% probability that I need to go home to feed my cat. And then a 40% probability that I need to go home and feed my dog. And then if the model says some sort of gibberish word you tell it no that's wrong uh the correct answer is cat and then the model adjusts its parameters and the next time maybe it will say cat or maybe it will say dog or something more closer to cat and then you repeat that and so chat gpt or gpt3 which is sort of the underlying model uh actually gpt4 now uh it's basically trained to do that so to finished sentences but it's trained on a pretty large percentage of the internet so openai basically scoured the internet including wikipedia youtube podcasts uh different new york times different news sites uh all kinds of text data that they can find and they collected all of it in one huge data set and then they give the model pieces of text and it it to predict the next word and so the model learns these underlying associations between words uh but with a large context so for instance gpt4 has 50 pages of context so given 50 pages of text it will predict the next word and uh that that uh, becomes a very powerful generator of text so underlying gpt is basically uh It's a generator of text, but it's not directed in any way. It just spits out random text. So you start up the model, it gives you, you give it some seed word. So any word, you tell it something like today, and then the model, uh, gives you the next word and then you input that sequence back into the model. And then it gives you the third world and the fourth and fifth and so on and so on. So basically it just spits out random text. And now, uh, The problem is that that model, while it has learned a lot of stuff, it's not very useful because it just gives you, given some input, it gives you random text. So what OpenAI do is they uh, sort of take this trained model and then they adjust it so that given some question, it will give the answer to that question. And they do that using uh, a very small data set. So the, the, the data set that is used for, for text generation is gigabytes and gigabytes of text. And then the, the data set they use for, to answer questions is basically, I don't know, 10,000 examples or so of questions and answers. And then the model learns, for a given question, I need to give an answer. And it can utilize all of that knowledge it has learned previously for generating text.
1: So for OpenAI, for ChatGPT, the data set that was used to train the question and answer part, where did that data come from? Did they create it themselves? Yes,
2: basically, they handcrafted the data set themselves, and okay. uh, the data for generation was just uh crawled over the internet
1: yeah, so that's the so the large language model part is the um that's what they pulled off the internet, yeah, okay, and then the secret sauce, what they've added, the value add is the question and answer and putting it all together
2: yes and there are some other things like uh, they ask uh, humans to rate how good the answers are and then they use that knowledge to adjust the model and so on and so on but uh, basically gpt on its own is just a text generator and then you sort of you you take that very powerful model and you sort of try to align it to give you the output that you want for a given input, but it's very important to understand that, in its core, the model was learned to generate plausible text. It it was never trained to generate truthful text or to to really understand the underlying uh, so, sort of the reason about uh, the underlying text. It does do that sometimes, but it's it's a consequence. It's not. Uh, explicitly trained to do so so uh, it's basically a very powerful model which will generate plausible text and then you try to sort of wrangle it to adjust it a little bit to give you uh, the proper output that you want but uh, all of the problems that arise with GPT come from the fact that it was trained just to generate text so that's why you see uh, sometimes it will just spout uh, completely uh, made up stuff because it's it's a plausible ending to your sentence, uh, even though it may be wrong.
1: We'll have more of the Codeco podcast after these words from Split.io. This podcast
0: is brought to you by the Split Feature Management and Experimentation Platform. What if a release was exactly how it sounds? A liberation from constraint. A moment of relief. An escape from outdated processes, tedious software, changes, and the slow, painful deployments that hold back product engineers. Free your teams and your features with Split. By attaching insightful data to feature flags, Split helps you quickly deploy, measure, and learn the impact of every feature you release, which means you can turn up what works, turn off what doesn't, and give software innovation the room to run wild. Now you can safely deliver features up to 50 times faster and exhale. Split feature management and experimentation, <laughs> what a release. To reimagine software delivery and propel your teams forward, start your free trial at Split.io. Codeco.
1: And we'd like to thank Split.io for sponsoring this episode of the Codeco podcast.
0: I've been basically told that when you ask it a technical question, you have to be careful that you have some technical knowledge to actually be able to validate the answer it's been giving you, Um, because it's giving you an answer that it assumes is reasonable, but not necessarily correct. On top of that, since it's scoured the internet, there was also the question of uh, whether or not it's generating plagiaristic uh, data, because it's basically... Basically gone to the internet and said well I'll just use this as an answer
2: well it can there are ways that you can force the model to give you verbatim uh, things that already exists on the internet but um, getting into whether that's plagiarism or not that's more of a sort of uh, philosophical or I guess law question because at a certain point you can say that You know, we, when we program, we basically take stuff from the internet and then combine it to produce our code more or less. So it's kind of hard to say where where the line is with plagiarism or not. But uh, yeah, definitely need to be careful because it will give you statistically likely answers or statistically likely words which are associated with each other. But that doesn't mean that it's true. It's only true because there's a correlation between truth and how uh, how much uh, sequence is in the data set, but it's not necessarily true.
1: I think it is worth going back to that, what Drew brought up though, that like, I think we need to put a pin in that and we need to continue to watch this as users and developers that, okay, what about plagiarism? I, I believe, I think right now, the understanding is anything ge- generated by an AI model is fair game to use, okay? But that could change. And you know, how do we feel about, like if we're using a Copilot in GitHub or whatever the tool is from Replit that, you know, if it's crawled over code that you wrote, and then is spitting that back out for other people. How does that feel? Um, How does it feel if you're an artist and you've done beautiful images and suddenly versions of your beautiful images are available for people to use without attribution and commercially? You know, this is, there are ethical questions and obviously legal questions. And I think, uh, I think we'll see change in that as this becomes more popular.
0: I know that the Writers Guild has already put in place certain rules involving chat GPT and how it can be used with relationship to industries that interact with the Writers Guild. OK, yeah.
1: we should put a link to that in the show notes.
0: I don't remember where I read it.
1: (laughs) We'll we'll find it. I'll find it. Yeah, unfortunately,
2: um, there are a lot of uh, problems with this, but uh, it's sort of one of those situations where the cat's out of the bag and sort of we already have the tool. We already have uh, a lot of emerging uh, different, basically, graphical user interfaces for the tool, and it's already producing value. So it's kind of now up to... Basically, these giant companies to battle it out in courts and then for Congress to to try to control some of that process. But uh, as it often happens with uh, technologies, we'll probably get some sort of consensus that uh, is is Basically, not good for anyone, but we would just have to live with it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. It's such early days still. I'd love to go back a little bit because I feel like you did such a clear, interesting job at um, defining deep learning. How would, what's the compare and contrast between artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning, ML? and deep learning, are those just three terms for the same exact thing or? So uh, they're all
2: um, subsets of each other. So uh, AI, uh, AI is basically an umbrella term that um, just means making computers do stuff it can mean anything from robotics to image processing computer vision and then machine learning and deep learning. they're all part of ai uh, it's more of a sort of marketing term than an actual useful term um, and then you have machine learning which is basically what i was talking about where you uh, give the computer a bunch of data and outputs and then you you try to sort of uh, You try to make the computer learn the underlying associations between uh, the input data and the outputs so that it can hopefully give you a useful prediction for future data. Um, The way machine learning and deep learning differ is that uh, basically deep learning uses much, much bigger models. And the reason we didn't do this before, uh, say, 10 or 20 years ago is that, first of all, large models require a huge amount of data to train because the larger the model is, uh, the more things there are inside of it and you need sort of more data to fill all of those parameters to give you good results. And 10 or 20 years ago, we just didn't have the amount of data that we have now because we have Flickr and Twitter and and uh, all kinds of different social, service, social networks and text on the internet and we can train these models using this data. And then the other thing that happened is uh, GPUs got so powerful that we can now train these models that we just couldn't imagine training 10 or 20 years ago. So uh, deep learning is basically a sort of extension of machine learning, but I think right now it's sort of gotten a life of its own uh, where there are people who do deep learning who don't who have never maybe interacted with these more traditional machine learning models.
0: Yeah, I, I um, took the liberty of, of pushing on, on GPT. And I, I want to understand where these safeguards got put in place. I, I asked it something random, like, "Should I be depressed in April, mainly because a lot of people get <laughs> seasonal dis- uh, seasonal uh, affective disorder. I said, "Should I be depressed in in April?" Uh, wondering exactly how it would respond, and it said, "Well, I can't predict the future." And depression is a serious ailment that you should talk to a medical professional about. I love this because ChatGPT didn't try to guess the ailment or give me a medical response, but I'm assuming that goes back to the secret sauce, that that goes back to this is the way we're going to have it respond to certain questions. Is this correct?
2: Uh, Well, actually, no. Uh, So... Uh, GPT itself, it will give you, or uh, even the the sort of chat GPT variant, it will give you the answer to any question. So what OpenAI have done is basically they added uh, filters on top where they try to detect Mm. if the question falls into one of these certain categories, and then they tell the model to give you a different output but the output is not coming from the actual model it's just a uh, sort of uh, a filter uh, it's kind of like a more sophisticated version of a bad word filter where if you type something bad it will just say no stop it
0: that's interesting so that means that there is the possibility of an unfiltered gpt that would have tried to diagnose and remedy my issue
2: oh it, i mean it's not a possibility you can yourself uh, run these models i mean obviously on your machine uh, probably not as large as gpt4 are but these models exist in the world there are open source ones and then there are uh, ones where you know how to train them and you can definitely build and run these models yourself without any of these uh, filters. But ChatGPT as a user interface has added them to make it, uh, I guess, more safe to use.
0: So have we hit a point where we could actually have something like ChatGPT pass a Turing test?
2: well, I mean, I guess if you define the Turing test as uh, a human not being able to detect whether they are talking to a, a human or a computer, then yeah, definitely. But uh, that sort of gets into the the question of how useful that metric is for.
0: That's very true. You know.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so I was I want to ask along these lines too because we were defining things like, can you talk to us about? AGI, which is the, you know, the artificial general intelligence or generalized intelligence, right? And also in US tax time, it has a different meaning related to um, uh, gross income, but, but it's more interesting in the AI uh, sphere. So, is, so do you not think the Turing test is useful? And where do you think we're at on AGI? Well, it's useful
2: for being able to fool humans, but um, can you say that uh, chat GPT is general intelligence? I mean, definitely not, at least in my opinion. It might maybe have some characteristics, or it may be that models in the future will will look similar to GPT-4. But right now, clearly, there's no sort of general intelligence about it since it's uh, basically just you give it some prompt and it gives you some output but uh, it has some ability to reason about what you did but at its core it's a it's a text generator it's not an intelligent uh, sort of system or it doesn't have human-like intelligence like we would interpret in the world but this again is a, a very sort of philosophical question because it matters a lot actually how you define what general intelligence is what consciousness is what all these things are mm. uh, and depending of where you stand on this spectrum uh some would say uh so long as a model is uh, uh, it it can fool us that it's intelligent, then it's intelligent. And then others would say, well, if it's not existing in the world and doing actions which are actually intelligent, it's not general intelligence.
1: So is that one of the thresholds? Is that something that we're uh, waiting for or fearing the arrival of, that uh, AI that's doing stuff on its own, so we're not prompting and it's just off doing which that certainly sounds potentially dystopian uh
2: yeah so that's one of the tests that uh computer scientists do to check if a sort of singularity moment has occurred uh which is very worrisome because you wonder what will happen if the test uh, fails or succeeds i guess depending on how you look at it but uh so one thing they do did with uh gpt4 is they gave it some money and access to uh basically a cloud uh infrastructure they gave it access to a command line and they told it you know do try to try to improve yourself and the assumption is that a sufficiently intelligent model would try to uh basically collect more data try to retrain itself to uh, iteratively improve itself using uh cloud uh, infrastructure but uh, fortunately so far uh, GPT-4 has failed to do that so we're safe for now.
0: I'd like to put chat GPT on the stock market and see whether or not it can improve that way. I thought of that
1: too. (laughs) Um, I'm sure we're not the only people who've thought about that. So it does lead right into which is super timely right now um, what do you think Maren about this idea of Causing uh training models right now you know so we don't go beyond gpt4
2: so i i think it's important to understand uh it's definitely important to keep in mind both the the long-term and the short-term risks of these models. So long-term would be something like we talk about, like a a singularity event or uh, things like that. But I think we are sort of far away from that and a waiting of six months, I don't think it uh, it will achieve much on that front. Uh, but there are definitely short-term risks which we need to be aware of, whether it's impact of, for instance, on the waiver market, like you mentioned, with artists and writers, etc., or whether it's uh, people becoming too reliant on these models, uh, even though we know they can be wrong a lot of the times. Uh, there are, and there are also some security implications where you can basically uh, hijack these models and use prompts to uh, achieve nefarious things. Um, these are real risks, and we need to take care of them. But uh, pausing development for six months, I don't think it's a good way to do that. I think uh, we need to uh, invest more in, in people researching these issues and uh, independent sort of governmental and non-governmental bodies, which will track these models and, and validate them on different uh, sort of terms. But um, pausing the uh, development of these models for six months, it just doesn't seem realistic. And it also doesn't seem like it would achieve much in that time frame.
1: As a researcher, are there particular organizations, NGOs that you're watching that you're like, okay, these guys are asking the right questions about AI and ethics in AI? Like, who should, you know, who should we be following on Twitter? Who should we be? Or maybe that's like the complete wrong place to look. Who should we be um, reading their blogs to?
2: So far... um... All of the large companies which build these kind of models do work uh, with uh, sort of independent organizations which validate their models. And uh, even OpenAI has agreed to release uh, their models for research purposes. And they are actually very open, uh, both uh, DeepMind and OpenAI and uh, Google and, and Meta, all of these companies are very open about the limitations of their models, at least so far. Uh, so you can always uh, look at their papers, uh, look at what they're saying, uh, obviously take it with a grain of salt because this can be uh, marketed and overhyped, uh, but uh, the space is very uh, decentralized, so it can be useful to sometimes to just follow general topics and then uh, different researchers will pop up uh, with different papers on why something is good or bad. Uh, but for uh, people who are not in the industry it can be very hard to to see what is what is the hype and oh, what's actually good about these models what's actually bad so honestly um without getting a sort of deep understanding of these models it's hard to to assess for for regular people how good or bad they are at certain tasks
1: yeah, I think that's, I think that's clearly the case. And this, you know, where you are saying emphatically, keep in mind chat GPT, it's just a text generator. It's just a text generator, but it doesn't feel that way when you're using it and it's not hyped in that way.
2: It can be, even for me, um, it can be very hard uh, or sort it can be very easy to forget this uh, fact when you're having a conversation with ChatGPT and you ask it a question, it gives you an answer, and it's it sort of it's correct 80 or 90% of the time, and it presents things in such a plausible way. We are so hardwired to, to respond to these uh, well written texts uh, that even for, for researchers, it can sometimes be hard to, to remember to question whether something is true or not. So it's sort of, I almost wonder if there should be some sort of disclaimer on uh, basically with every output that says something like, please remember, this can be wrong.
1: (laughs) I wish we had time to play the entire interview. But if you'd like to see the interview with all the material... Watch YouTube for the full video version. Uh,
0: Marianne, I, I obviously should probably thank you for taking time away from a PhD study. That is, uh, I know that's quite a time time thing, uh, as well as having a seven month old. You, you, yeah. you obviously have your hands full, and I really want to thank you for being on the show this, this uh, episode.
2: No problem. It's really fun talking to you.
1: And your work as an educator really shows here in this episode. I'm excited for listeners to be able to hear this because I think you've explained some really difficult, big concepts in a way that is
0: easy to follow. And so thank you for doing that.
2: Oh, thank you for saying that. It means a
0: lot. Well, the one question I do have for you, Maureen, so we can make sure that people can contact you, is what Twitter or Mastodon are you using?
2: So I'm uh, Marin Bentz. Uh, uh No spaces on all social media, uh, basically on Twitter and Mastodon right now. Uh, I'm not active, but I work there, and I occasionally post something, so if people want to follow me... They can.
0: So that's M-A-R-I-N-B-E-N-C.
2: Yes. Yeah, correct.
0: You can find Suze as always at Suze Guptas, S-U-Z, G-U-P-T-A, and I am podcast drew. Um, and for those of you watching the video version, you'll see it in our name blocks underneath our videos. We try to be very helpful and very convenient here. Um, as I mentioned in our last episode, we are continually asking for some, uh, user feedback. We have a, uh, poll that is in the bottom of the post that you will find on codeco.com slash podcast, uh, where our episodes are posted, uh, besides on all of your favorite, um, podcast apps, <laughs> Uh, We have just a few more episodes coming up this season. Uh, Of course, uh, in an episode or two, Susan and I will both take the wheel and just uh, talk about a topic that is dear and near to our hearts. We also have finally now got announcements for Google I.O. and WWDC, which we do cover every season with a live cast, and we will have more information about that. But until our next episode, which should be in two weeks, thank you so much for tuning in and we will talk to you in the next episode.
1: And that's a wrap. Thanks again everybody for listening to the Codeco podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to leave a rating in your favorite podcast app. See you next time.